We are continuing our study of the book of 1 John this morning, um, and if you're here for the first time, we want to welcome you. We're glad to have you here. Uh, before we get into this morning's passage, I want to take this opportunity to recognize the oldest of my three brothers, uh, although he's slightly younger than me, my brother Mike, who's visiting from Pensacola, Florida this morning and this weekend. Now, here's a picture of um, Mike and I back when I was preparing him for a distinguished career as a Marine. Now, as a little side story, uh, our father was adamantly opposed to any of his sons going into the military. And this is a result of his experiences in World War II, experiences so life-threatening and horrific that he made a vow to God that if he got through it alive, he would never cuss again. And we never heard our dad once even use a mild byword, which is quite significant for a guy who spent his entire working life as a brakeman on the railroad for more than 35 years. So when Mike, <clears throat> as he was graduating from college in Arkansas, got accepted into the Marines Officer Candidate School in 1973, he called me back here in Indiana from Arkansas and asked me to break the news to Dad, which I did. And so Mike went on to an entire career as a Marine Air Corps navigator and retired in 1999 as a lieutenant colonel. And Dad attended his uh, celebration of his retirement uh, and was very proud of him. So I just wanted to express my happiness for Mike's visit and remind him that uh, I was his inspiration <laughs> and had his back with the old man. Now this, and that's another picture when I was in uniform. I never made it past the uh, bobcat stage as a Cub Scout, but uh, Mike went on to greater things. Now if I were going to put a title to this morning's lesson, I would title it this way. Either Jesus is who he says he is, or he isn't. But if he is, dot, dot, dot. And we're taking our text from 1 John, the 5th chapter, the first 12 verses. And in this epistle, John writes here, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God, by loving God and carrying out his commands. In fact, this is love for God, to keep His commands, and His commands are not burdensome. For everyone born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. This is the one who came by water and blood, Jesus Christ. He did not come by water only, but by water and blood. And it is the Spirit who testifies because the Spirit is the truth. For there are three that testify, the Spirit, the water, and the blood, and the three are in agreement. And we accept human testimony, but God's testimony is greater because it is the testimony of God which He has given about His Son. Whoever believes in the Son of God accepts this testimony. Whoever does not believe, God has made him out to be a liar because they have not believed the testimony of God has given about His Son. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. And whoever has the Son has life. Whoever does not have the Son of God does not have life. 
Now, I'm going to make four quick points in this lesson. And the first point deals with who Jesus is. Lots of people believe in the historical Jesus, that Jesus of Galilee actually physically existed and walked this earth, and, is not, and that's not a difficult fact to sustain. If I ask you what year this is, what would you say? 4721? The year of the rabbit, according to the Chinese? Today's date would be the 26th of Muharram, 1445 Hijri, according to the Afghani calendar. But no, most of the world marks their calendar by Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord, August 13, 2023, because the Gregorian calendar that was adopted under the edict of Pope Gregory the Great in 1582, Anno Domini, the Latin for the year of our Lord, was later changed to CE, meaning the Christian era, and that was later changed uh, to denote the common era because the world is trying to be antithetical to Christ and eliminate it. I bring this up to underscore that simply believing in an historical Jesus does not make one a believer. There is much more to the claim of the historical Jesus that sets him apart from simply being a good moral leader. He claimed to be the promised Messiah, and why is that significant? The word Messiah literally means the anointed one. The Jewish people for centuries have been looking for the coming of the Messiah to fulfill the prophecies of the Old Testament and restore the promised kingdom of God's people. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, the great Hebrew lawgiver Moses prophesied, the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. From among you, from your fellow Israelites, you must listen to him. We read near the end of the book of Genesis about Jacob as he was about to die, and he called his 12 sons around him and gave his final words to them. And to his son Judah, who was the third in line, he said, Judah, your brothers will praise you. Your hand will be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's sons will bow down to you. You are a lion's cub, Judah. You return from the prey, my son. Like a lion, he crouches and lies down. Like a lioness, who dares to arouse him? The scepter will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he to whom it belongs shall come and the obedience of the nation shall be his. He will tether his donkey to a vine, his colt to the choicest branch. He will wash his garments in wine, his robes in the blood of grapes. His eyes will be darker than wine, his teeth whiter than milk. And that's Genesis 49, 8 through 12. Now, as I said, Judah was not Jacob's firstborn son. And as a matter of fact, he had committed what we consider a very atrocious sin by impregnating his daughter-in-law, Tamar, but he has this blessing pronounced on him. And who was descended from Judah? King David. And eventually, Jesus of Nazareth. Years after David had ruled the nation of Israel and it divided into two nations, and eventually both were subjugated by foreign enemies, Ezekiel prophesied in Ezekiel chapter 37, beginning with verse 21, this is what the sovereign Lord says, I will take the Israelites out of the nations where they have gone, I will gather them from all around and bring them back into their own land. I will make them one nation in the land, on the mountains of Israel. There will be one king over all of them, and they will again, never again be two nations or be divided into two kingdoms. They will no longer defile themselves with their idols and vile images or with any of their offenses. For I will save them all from their sinful backsliding, and I will cleanse them 
They will be my people, and I will be my God, and they will, I will be their God. My servant David will be king over them, and they all will have one shepherd. They will follow my laws and be careful to keep my decrees. Now, David had died long ago before this prophecy was making, being made. But the prophet was speaking of a descendant of the great king, and as we can see in the genealogies recorded for us in the Gospels of Matthew and Luke, Jesus could trace his lineage back to David. And the foremost prophecy concerning the Messiah, since we don't have time to look at all of them this morning, is Isaiah 7.14, where Isaiah says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And the name Emmanuel literally means God with us. So all Israel through the centuries since Moses was looking for the revelation of the promised Messiah. And what John is saying in this passage, in verse 1, is that it's not enough to acknowledge the historical fact of Jesus of Nazareth. It's that you must believe that He is the promised Messiah of God. And understand that this was a major step in faith for the Jews of John's day. A subsequent to the day of Pentecost, we read about in Acts 2, and then the conversion of the household of the Roman military leader Cornelius, which who was the first non-Jewish conversion, it's a major step of faith for anyone who claims to be a follower of Jesus to say this is the promised Messiah of God. It's absolutely fundamental that he be acknowledged as the promise of God fulfilled. Any atheist will probably acknowledge the appearance of a human Jesus, but the Christian must acknowledge that Jesus is God manifested in human form. Now, do you claim to be a Christian? This belief is foundational. There are no Christians who do not hold to that belief. That's point number one. Point number two from this passage is that if we are actually Christians, followers of Jesus Christ, we will keep His commands. And keeping the commands of another is not natural to we humans. It's a learned trait, being obedient to the command of another. Am I right, husbands? I've been hit on the nose with a rolled-up newspaper many times over the years, and I'm still learning. However, being scolded bad dog back dog isn't necessary every time. So let's take a moment to reflect on the man's history of dealing with God's commands. If we look at the Garden of Eden, how many commands did they have to keep track of? Just one. Don't eat of the fruit of the tree in the midst of the garden or bad things are going to happen. Sounds pretty simple, doesn't it? If you're surrounded by lush greenery, magnificent landscaping, food to be plucked anytime you feel like a snack, an attractive companion who stays naked and isn't even embarrassed by it, and there's just one rule, don't eat from that one tree. And even that one rule gets violated because they were seduced to believe a lie. Or maybe you interpret that part of the Genesis story as being allegorical. Then let's take a look at the historical fact of the ten rules given through Moses on Mount Sinai recorded in Exodus 20. Just ten commands. And even before Moses gets down off the mountain, they are already violating numbers one and two, making other gods and bowing down before them. And then as the years passed, in order to attempt to keep those ten, a system of regulations was developed there are 613 commands in the Torah intended to keep the Jewish people straight and compliant with those original ten. 
And until the days of Jesus, the sect of the Jews, known as the Pharisees, wanted to condemn Jesus for healing on the Sabbath instead of resting because they considered his act of healing as working on the Sabbath. You know, this neighborhood uh, has several Jewish families living here. There's a Hebrew Orthodox synagogue directly behind this building on High Street. And if you drive down Dalmoyer Avenue on any Saturday afternoon, you're going to see several Jewish families walking to synagogue. A friend of mine, who is a sister of one of our members, was telling me the other day how when she was a teenager living on Irvington, she used to babysit for some Jewish families. And uh, one of her tasks as a babysitter was to program the VCR for the Notre Dame home games. Because the act of hitting those buttons on that VCR would have been construed as work on the Sabbath. And since she was a Gentile, she could do that for them. And she had some other stories that were quite amusing. But this illustrates how humans react to rules or commands. We look for ways to skirt them and still feel compliant. But it is a demonstration of the fact that humans take the very simple and create complexities that are intended to skirt the simple. Another illustration of this human nature is found in an area in which I've worked for the last 52 years, the federal tax system. Did you know that this month, August 5th, 1861, President Lincoln, we didn't have an income tax before then, no federal income tax, but President Lincoln signed the Revenue Act on August 5th of 1861, which was imposed to generate funds because the Civil War was going on. And the act imposed a 3% tax on all income over $800. 3%. That seems like a fairly simple calculation to make. And I like that rate much better than what I currently pay. But leaving it that simple would completely eliminate the need for H&R Block or Chuck Barrington or thousands of other tax preparation services. But out of that, do you know that today there are 9,000 834 individual sections to the Internal Revenue Code. And on top of that, there are regulations written to compel obedience to the underlying law. Back in 2012, the IRS has a section called the uh, National Taxpayer Advocate. Uh, they work for the uh, Internal Revenue Service, but they're supposed to be uh, keeping tabs on the Internal Revenue Service. But they did a Microsoft word count of the tax code and regulations and came up with a word count of approximately 4 million words. And so we go from 3% over $800 to 4 million words, and even then we're not sure about it. So we have this whole segment of the economy who are tax preparers, accountants, and tax attorneys because we glory in making the simple, complex, and burdensome. And the same is true in the realm of religion. And I make a distinction between religion and being a follower of Jesus. As I've noted, the Pharisees condemned Jesus for doing miraculous good on the Sabbath because it violated their regulations for the religion they were practicing. Never mind that blind people were being made able to see, that people who were lame were now being able made to walk, or even dead people being raised back to life. Jesus was a threat to their rules. And when John tells us in verse 3 that God's commands are not burdensome, it's hard for most folks to understand. We have a tendency to make the simple complex. And when I think of the scriptures, I tend to look at them in a variety of ways. But one of the ways is that it is an owner's manual. 
a guide to living the best life that we can here. Unlike many of you, I'm not very mechanically inclined or intuitive. That's one of the reasons why I have a great antipathy toward IKEA. IKEA, in my view, is a four-letter word. But IKEA does give you instructions for putting together their abominable peg-based furniture. So if I purchased anything from IKEA that needs to be assembled or has features with which I'm not familiar, like a lot of my iPad, I don't know how to operate, I am reliant on the owner's manual to guide me to get the optimum satisfaction from the product. And when God crowned his creation with the highest life form, which is man, and I'm excluding politicians from that category, the highest life form, we need guidance on how to get the most out of what God has gifted us. And to assure us that God's commands are not burdensome, Jesus, in answering his critics, reduced all of the law of Moses and all of the prophet's utterances and all of the Torah regulations down to two simple commands in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 40. Hearing that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, the Pharisees got together, and one of them, an expert in the law, tested him with this question, teacher, Which is the greatest commandment in the law? And Jesus replied, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and the greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. Do you see something that someone else has that you want? Would you want it taken unlawfully from you if you had it? Then love your neighbor as yourself and you don't steal. Do you consider it loving if another takes up with your spouse, or is that offensive to you? Then don't commit adultery. Would you think it was loving if someone lied to you and cheated you? Then don't lie to your neighbor. And obviously, we don't feel it would be loving for someone to kill us, so don't kill your neighbor. The brilliance of Jesus to summarize all the law and the prophets in just these two commands demonstrates that God's commands are not burdensome. It's a simple matter of, first of all, loving the one who created us, and secondly, treating or loving others as we would want to be treated or loved. True love of God is not burdensome. I think for a moment about the example of Jacob's love for Rachel, and you remember Jacob was one of the sons uh, who went out uh, to look for a wife, and he sees Rachel watering and drawing water, and she must have been a good-looking woman because he's immediately smitten by her, and he wants her for a wife. And so he goes to her father Laban, and he strikes a bargain with him. If you work for me for seven years, she's your wife. But what Jacob didn't realize was she had an older sister who had to be married off first. And so at the end of seven years, when he says to Laban, you know, I'm ready to get married to Rachel now, Laban says, well, yeah, but we got Leah to deal with. And so he extends the bargain for another seven years. So for 14 years, Jacob works to get the love of his life, Rachel. Was it burdensome? Well, it was inconvenient, but he loved her so greatly it was not burdensome. And if we love God and we love his son, Jesus Christ, His commands are not burdensome. So why do we keep messing up these two simple commands? 
Why do we devalue our love of God and those created in His image so often? Because the world systems work against God and us. And we're in a perpetual war with the systems of this world. And although we keep messing up and have not achieved perfection in keeping these commands, we rely as His followers on the one who lived it perfectly and stands in our place, Jesus the Messiah. Jesus declares it Himself in John chapter 16, verse 32 and 33. A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered each to your own home, and you will leave me all alone. Yet I am not alone, for my, my Father is with me. I have told you these things, so that in me you may have peace, and in this world you will have trouble. But take heart, I have overcome the world. Point three, John goes on to state that contrary to Gnostic teachings of that day, Jesus was not some phantom too holy to be human. He came in flesh and blood. The water and blood testify to the realness of Jesus' humanity. His three-and-a-half-year public ministry began in the water as John the Baptist baptized him in the River Jordan. And at the end of the three-and-a-half years, he was battered and bloodied on a Roman cross of execution and had his side pierced by a Roman soldier, and out came blood and water. And that water and that blood testify to both the humanity and the divinity of Jesus the Messiah. And that's what a Christian is compelled to believe. And if you don't believe that, Messiah, divine and human in one form, then you're not a Christian. And finally, point four. And this is the testimony God has given us, eternal life. And this life is in His Son. I want to close by asking this question. What kind of life would we be living if we truly believed that eternal life was ours? Would we fear death? I make jokes about my death, and that in itself has become somewhat of a joke around here. But the truth of the matter is that in the recesses of my mind, I think that if I make a joke about it, it stays away from me. But now I'm in my mid-70s, and it's not so funny to me because I know how quickly time passes, and there's only so much time left. Every day I read the obituaries of the Kokomo Tribune, and since I grew up in Kokomo, my brother and I made a, <laughs> we're tracing our roots, we went back to Kokomo and Elwood yesterday, where we were born in Elwood. Uh, and uh, in the last month, I have seen the obituaries of four of my classmates. So I had a doctor's appointment this past week that had me wondering, prior to going to that appointment, is this where I find that I'm reaching the end? Now, just to put you at ease, he told me I have the body of a 25-year-old. who lives in an iron lung. <laughs> I still have life left to repent. If I'm allowed to live the same number of years from now that has passed since we became the Living Stones Church, and that seems such a short time now, I would be 91. It's possible that the odds aren't all that good. But if we truly believe we have eternal life, what do we have to fear about what is coming to us, all of us? And if we truly believe that eternal life is ours, why would we be worried about what others in the world think about us or if they reject us? Our confidence as followers of Jesus is not in ourselves or our own personal strengths and virtues. Our confidence is the one who went before us, who bled and died and rose never to taste death again, to purchase that eternal life for us. I hear a lot these days about the date January 6th. That's a very significant date for me for a couple of reasons.
On January 6, 1969, I asked Diane to be my wife. Her dad wanted me to work on his farm for seven years, but <laughs> then I realized I, he was getting rid of one of his nine mouths to feed, so it was a go. And as much as I love my wife and expect her to arrange my funeral, see what I did there? Uh, there is another January 6th that is even more important. That is January 6th, 1963. And that was the date that I was baptized into Christ and became able to claim that eternal life that John is writing about. When we baptize, we precede baptism by, baptism by asking, do you believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And that's what John is writing about here. So are you a follower of Jesus? Do you love God and want to keep these two simple commands? They aren't burdensome, and they promise eternal life. That will take a load off of your shoulders if you truly believe. Will you bow with me in prayer? Holy God, our Father in heaven, I thank you, Father, for these people who have come here to worship you, who love you, and who wish to not only love you, Father, but to keep your commands. And Father, we thank you for Jesus, because in our imperfections, Father, we realize we're never going to be perfect, we're never going to do everything exactly as we should, but he took on human form, though he was divine, and bled and died so that we can be relieved of that worry. Father, help us to truly be followers of Jesus, and it's in his name that we pray, amen.